On this episode of China Unscripted, China is waging economic warfare against the U.S. Does the U.S. have the political will to fight back? And how environmentalism could be America's greatest weapon. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Senior Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, Christopher Balding. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, well, so the last time we had you on, it was it was right before the election. Uh, sort of the the Hunter Biden scandal was the big thing in the news. And, you know, a lot of China watchers were, you know, really concerned about what a Biden administration's China policy might look like. Um, we're about a year into the administration. What do you, overall, what do, how do you think the Biden administration has done as far as handling the Chinese Communist Party? I think, honestly, it's a, it's a pretty mixed record. Uh, there's been a handful of uh, small steps forward. Um, and there's really been, I think, generally speaking, um, a whole lot of, uh, of nothing, uh, that is, that has happened in, in the win column. There is, I think, and I would, and I personally would count this as a, as a relatively significant, uh, win, um, in the sense of the Australian, uh, sub deal. And I think more than, uh, more than just the, the direct impact, I think it's a much bigger symbolic, uh, impact, but I think one of the things that gets lost in all of that is all the reporting indicates that that was a discussion initiated by the Australians. That this was not a U.S.-led project to say, "Hey, this is something we want to accomplish to to help you guys." That this was this was started and really pushed forward by the Australians. I think there there has been, and you just saw. I think it was yesterday. Um, Biden has continued to. Uh, slowly add a variety of, of different Chinese companies to the entity list. So I think you have to call those uh, small steps forward. Um, they are they do appear to set uh, to move forward on uh, delisting Chinese companies in a couple of years. Uh, of course, there's a long way to go, but they have released uh, basically a plan to do that. Um, so I do think there are absolutely some some small steps, uh, you know, taking place that are positive. I think, however, there is generally speaking a lot of uh, a lot of a lot more standing still and um, publicity that is taking place than than actual action. Um, mm -hmm. By that I mean, you know, just to give you a simple example, um, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. in the 2021 National Defense Appropriations Act um, got behind a, a project called the ORAN Alliance, which is basically intended to make uh, a 5G uh, standard and project, which can make networks interoperable so that you can take any you know 5G network component from one company and put in the component of another company with, with no problem. Um, and what makes that uh, an important project is, is the U.S. government is actually giving out grants to this uh, and, and companies to, to push this, uh, this standard forward. But what's crazy about it is that uh, China and Russia are a part of this alliance, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese entity list companies. And the Biden administration and you know, senior senators on the Hill are pushing this forward. Um, so even though right now we don't have Huawei or ZTE in U.S. Uh, telecommunications sec uh, networks, with, with a couple of small exceptions, 
we we're, we're, we're that seems to be being pushed where we would basically reallow Chinese companies, which are not just giving being given IP to do this, but are actually being given U.S. tax dollars to do this, and are actually actively participating in uh, coding and developing this entire uh, project. Um, there's being there's there's different waivers that are being given to Chinese companies, um, and so I think. Once you weigh all the all the you know let's say forward movement and backwards movement, I would probably give them you know about a you know C C minus. I wouldn't give them a failing grade, but they definitely have not really let's say advanced the ball and significantly raised pressure on China. One last point about this: I think the the Olympics uh, the Olympics is a perfect example. They had been uh, being pressured uh, really from the day they, they, they won the election and, um, and maybe had uh, taken office uh, about, you know, hey, th- this is something that should take place. And so they basically waited until, you know, uh, the 11th hour to, to make a decision. I think we're under 60 days here from the Olympics at this point. Um, they waited until a very late period until other countries had already signaled that they were going to engage in a diplomatic boycott. And it was after China, even hearing of these leaks, said, well, we're not going to invite you anyway. So, you, you know, consider yourself off the hook. And then, of course, they announce it and Beijing gets angry that we decided to issue a diplomatic boycott. So I think that's a, that's that's another example where it's like there is forward movement. I don't think you can call it high quality or significantly advancing the pressure on China forward. Uh Materially, so I think you have to you have to weigh those, you know, how that's unfolding and in, in the overall uh, environment that the Biden administration is creating. How I mean, isn't you- it a lot better than you know George W. Bush going to the 2008 Olympics? I mean, a diplomatic boycott is still the right move, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And so I absolutely do think they should get credit for uh, for you know uh, doing the right move. I mean, make no mistake about that. Um, and that's why I say I think it is probably at the end of the day, um, you know, if if they had put in diplomatic pressure, they maybe could have gotten, you know, maybe some concessions for the athletes when they're in Beijing. Um, they could have, you know, maybe uh, recruited more countries uh, to to engage in a diplomatic boycott. I think there's different possibilities like that where if they had if they had said this is something we want to do, uh, they, they, they could have done more. What do you think about the uh, Biden administration's policies on Taiwan? Um, I think there is, uh, I think I would be a little bit more optimistic uh, there in the sense that one of the issues that you're looking forward is that, you know, Trump, when it comes to China, um, really handed off a pretty good, a pretty solid uh, dossier. You know, we've laid a good groundwork for you to continue this, this line of work. And so um, the the Biden administration record on China, there's definitely a little bit of rolling back. There's a little bit of pushing it forward. I think on Taiwan, they've definitely pushed it forward more, I think a little bit more directly and really haven't rolled anything back. So I would probably give them a little bit higher grade uh, on ta- on the Taiwan issue uh, specifically, probably about a B. It was, it's weird because, yeah, I would overall say the Biden administration has done a fairly good job pushing things forward with Taiwan. But then the, the weird thing happened at the democracy summit where the Taiwan ministers. Oh, Audrey Tang. And yeah, her. the it got cut. 
the feed got cut and it was just audio only. And then they, because, well, she, she had like a picture of like Taiwan and China and Taiwan was a different color. And then that got cut. And it's like, no one really knows what's going on. But the U.S. invited Taiwan to the democracy. Yeah, but it's it's hard to understand. That, that seems like kind of low level fumbling to me. Well, like somebody freaked out about it and then they didn't have a good yeah. way to address it. Well, yeah, that's what's weird. It's like they invited Taiwan. That was a huge move. But then like like according to sources speaking to Reuters, it was a deliberate move to cut the feet of the Taiwan minister. And, you know, the State Department denies this. But like at the end of the, the feed, there was like this message that pops up that says like, you know, the views and opinions of anyone speaking here today do not represent the U.S. government, which makes it sound like it was a little more deliberate. There are two specific stories that came out. One of them was is that uh, the the White House is watching this feed. They see this and they go ballistic and they start yelling at the State Department. The State Department pulls the feed. The other one is that uh, the, out of the White House was that this was solely a State Department decision to to do this. I don't have any way of knowing which uh, which uh, version of that of, of that uh, unfolding of events is accurate. Let's assume, like a lot of conferences, the State Department says all speakers send in your your PowerPoints uh, a week ahead of time or something like that. Okay, I, I'm going to assume that that happened. Okay, I mean I would be surprised if you know the State Department didn't say we want to review the the PPTs before they go up. I'm assuming then that somebody in the State Department uh, basically signed off on um, the PowerPoints that she was going to prote- present. I would be skeptical if to say that, you know, Taiwan tried to got some slides approved and then tried to slip this in um, under the noses of the State Department. So at that point, you know, there's some it, it, it would appear that it got signed off on by somebody inside the U.S. government. And then somebody else inside the U.S. government said, we don't like that Taiwan is a different color. Whoever that is, you know, I, I, I can only guess. I mean, there's two different stories. What the truth is, I don't know. I think more than anything, it's a bad look. If uh, the Biden administration had just said, because because they, they drew more attention to it than probably anyone would have cared, um, you know. Otherwise, um, I mean, the they, they strizanded what what happened really. Um, and I think more importantly, if they had just said, "Hey, uh, we're not responsible for those slides," you know, China, we still adhere to the one China policy, our our, our historical one China policy. Um, that would have been a better response than than what they did. Yeah, this is why it seems like some weird fumbling to me. Like the people were trying to CYA, and it didn't go well. Yes, absolutely, and it it really does. I, I think appear. Uh, you know, rather incompetent. And I, I think it makes them look not so good and, and really like they're trying to please uh, placate China. Well, you mentioned something earlier about um, uh, th- this deal where like Huawei might be able to get parts in U- U.S. Well, like set the standards for 5G, right? Yeah. Is that the this, this Oran Alliance thing? Yeah, so it's it's actually it's actually more than standard setting, which which they are standard setting, but it, it's actually an industry alliance, um, and so it includes um, all the big uh, Chinese or uh, global and and China included uh, telecom service providers like your you, you know your T-Mobiles, your AT and T's, you know China Mobile, China Unicom, all these guys. 
um, in Europe, Japan, other countries like that. And then it also includes uh, big uh, component uh, makers, Nokia, Ericsson, Intel, Microsoft, uh, Google, all these guys. Um, and then it also includes like, you know, small players, research institutions, all this kind of good stuff. And so they're not just standard setting, they're actually developing the products, uh, uh, products in concert. And so it actually has a couple of unique wrinkles um, in the sense of the companies as part of joining this alliance. Um, part of the agreement is, is that uh, you agree to license intellectual property that comes out of this to other, uh, to other companies in the alliance. And so there's probably 30 or 40 Chinese companies um, that are in this alliance. Um, many of them are, there's a number of them that are entity list or uh, on the, the, the U.S. government PLA owned uh, list. Um, and of course, many of the ones that, you know, you've never heard of are, you know, very tightly linked to the government, some of them even the military. Um, and so think about this, you know, the, the U.S. government is backing this project. Um, and we are requiring U.S., European, Japanese companies to license intellectual property to these Chinese companies, okay, because that's part of the, that's part of the alliance agreement. The, the, the other part is, is that in the development, because, again, they're not just standard setting, they're actively developing these, 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 these products, um, as part of the development, Chinese companies are actually – helping to develop the code and, and hardware for this. So this means the Chinese PLA and also uh, tangentially uh, Russian companies get access to the entire source code that is going to make up the, the ORAN product line that um, U.S. government hopes will go into U.S. telecoms network. Now, to me, I personally just think it's absolutely, you know, Looney Tunes that we would, you know, basically hand over source code for U.S. telecom networks or parts of U.S. telecom networks to the Chinese PLA and, and Russian security services. But again, I, I'm, you know, I'm an extremist, according to some. So this how long has this been going on? So the alliance itself was founded in 2018, and it was probably 2019 20 before it really started gaining attention and getting political support. And so in the 2021 National Defense Appropriations Act, which was actually passed in December 2020, a year ago, um, with some funding for this year, uh, uh, it uh, was uh, received support from uh, Senator Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, uh, with Senator Warner coming out of a telecoms background and Senator Rubio wanting to demonstrate his anti-China credentials. Wait, so they supported it? They said they supported this, yes. And so there was there was actually some funding, and I want to say it was a total of about up to $1.5 billion uh, that, that could be uh, used to help uh, fund uh, research uh, things like that, uh, that that went into this overall project. Yes, I'm I'm confused because you said Rubio supported it, but he's like he supported it in order to 
Uh, yes. So there what? were. So what happened was, is there would be like, for instance, like there are U.S. companies in this, like uh, Qualcomm, things like that. So if they if they came to you know uh, the, the U.S. funding agency and said, hey, we're going to do research on X Y Z aspect of you know um, interoperability um, uh, is 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 the keyword. Uh, we're going to do, uh, and we estimate this specific part of research to cost fifty million dollars or something like that to further ORAN objectives. Um, uh, development costs, things like that. Uh, different companies could uh, could secure funding from the U.S. government to push uh, to to help push uh, the ORAN uh, concept forward. But you said Rubio was doing it because he wanted to burnish his anti-China credentials. But it seems like this is helping China. Am I not it's, getting it? it? Yes. No. You're absolutely right. And so it is rather it is rather puzzling. Um, and honestly, like I, I have tried repeatedly and I cannot get any type of satisfactory answer. Uh, I can't really get an answer from, from anyone as to how this is helping to secure U.S. telecoms networks from adversaries like China and Russia. Um, because, again, it's not just China. It's not just Russia. Why would you want to give countries like that uh, key source code, license them U.S. intellectual property, uh, you know, that is going into, uh, you know, next generation technologies in U.S. telecoms networks. Well, so given how allowing China to join this is, uh, what's the word, stupid, why did it get to the point where decision makers were like, yeah, let's let China join. Let's let Russia join. Like, why didn't we just make it an American thing or maybe an America EU thing? There, there's a couple of things. This was initiated by some of the key corporations, you know, uh, globally uh, in the telecom space, and the the telecom service providers basically were complaining that they thought they were overpaying uh, for uh, for network uh, for network equipment. So one of the key aspects of like Huawei's ETE is that they charge, uh, let's say, about thirty percent less on average. Uh, you know, for the straight sticker price of gear than like a Nokia or, or an Ericsson. So uh, telecom service providers, your T-Mobiles, your AT&Ts, Verizons, et cetera, and similar com companies around the world were basically saying, hey, we need to create more competition in this space because basically uh, globally in the network uh, market, uh, in, in, the, in the network equipment market, you basically have Huawei, ZTE, Nokia, and Ericsson. So if you're going to tell an American telecom service provider that is going to build a 5G network that you can't use uh, ZTE or Huawei, you're basically left with two companies. So they thought they were overpaying. So they said, we need to make these networks. Oh, and also the networks didn't really work together. Okay, so you could run 50% of the country on Nokia and 50% of it on Ericsson, but you couldn't just take out a, a, a Nokia part and put in an, an Ericsson part. Okay, it didn't work that way. So they said, if, what if we could uh, have these networks so that I could rip out a Nokia part and just stick in an Ericsson part when it broke or became obsolete? And so it was really pushed by the telecom service providers and some of the smaller network, uh, network equipment providers. 
But what they did is they went to the politicians and said, look, get behind this project because this becomes a uh, this becomes a way for you to foster a national champion. So you actually had smaller countries in Europe getting behind this because they said, hey, you know, we're, we, we don't like that those Scandinavians, you know, control everything. So if I'm France, if I'm Germany, if I'm, you know, some of, some of these other countries, I can get behind this. The American politicians got behind it because they said, hey, this is this is possible for us because America doesn't really have a key company here. Um, and also this helps us get away from China. So the so but what the uh, alliance had started doing is they had started uh, letting Chinese companies in. I suspect on the political side that basically they are very close with telecom uh, providers. And so they went along with what the telecom providers were telling them. And they did not actually research what are the key details of this um, of this alliance and who are the companies that are going to have access to this technology. So I, I suspect that on the political side, it's the it's the same it's a very similar story of big money and not actually researching the topic uh, that they that they were you know basically spending public money on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it just seems so... Well, like everything that was being done with like the clean 5G networks. Yeah, I was just and... thinking about that. Like they, the the Trump administration made this huge push for clean 5G. Getting Chinese telecoms, particularly Huawei, out of any kind of uh, global right. telecommunications and, chain. But then at the same time, this other thing was going on and now we're funding it. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, so this is kind of an issue. Like there's always... like. Any move forward by any administration always seems to be stumbled, messed up by like these, you know, like either like in this case, it seems like you're saying that telecommunications companies are responsible for giving China a backdoor. Uh, you know, we also constantly have issues with like Wall Street, the Ray Dalio type people. And this is significant because I think one of the biggest weapons the United States has against the Chinese Communist Party right now is economic leverage, like we were talking about the blacklists earlier of Chinese tech companies. Well, all right, let's, let's talk about the blacklist thing for a moment. Like, is this an effective economic weapon the U.S. can use? And then we'll kind of talk about what we can do about the Wall Street and Ray Dalio types. I think there is, I, I think there are actually valid reasons to say it's a nice little kind of like, you know, cherry on top, but you cannot use sanctions as, as, as a primary tool, Pr primarily because they, they really aren't that uh, effective, um, uh, especially on companies, because especially in China, what we will see, and I've seen cases like this where, you know, if the U.S. government sanctions, you know, Chinese Acme Military Co., uh, what they will do is they will literally, and I've seen case, a couple cases like this where literally they will go out on the day after that they're sanctioned. You know, they're at dinner in Beijing and they get word, oh, my company just got sanctioned. They will go out and within a couple of days, they will have, you know, Chinese Acme Military Co. 2 at the same address with the same CEO, the same shareholders, same everything. And now they're selling, you know, their shoulder fired missiles to, you know, street gangs in, you know, some country, you know, under, under that uh, corporate name uh, rather than the one that got sanctioned. OK, so that and so because it takes quite a period of time and a lot of work to put Acme 2 on the sanctions list, it basically turns out to be, generally speaking, pretty irrelevant. OK, what's a Huawei, though? Like there's not like some other company that's taken over Huawei's 
role, right? Look under a different name that's selling components to the US or is there that we don't know about? Or I don't know about. So I think that so I think there's a couple answers to that. So first of all, one of the things you've seen is you've definitely seen, let's say, some black market telecoms parts that are probably leaking out that probably should have Huawei on 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 a sticker on the on the on the product, but you know they they put somebody else's sticker on there. Okay. Um, also, what you've seen is you've actually seen Huawei, for instance, like they sold their 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 handset division to uh, to uh, a Shenzhen government company okay uh, it was it's, it's basically a Shenzhen government SOE uh, and so now there is a valid question does the Huawei handset division carry that sanction or can this Shenzhen government company now sell old Huawei handsets into uh, into the United States market with this new brand name Especially since they're basically made at the same plants with the same people with the same chips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have seen some of that even with uh, even with Huawei. Um, I think for a company like Huawei, the bigger concern is less about selling into the U.S. Uh, with any material degree, and more about the products that they would be able to buy from uh, from U.S. companies. And this is especially true of like Chinese chip companies. We're less concerned about buying Chinese chips than we are about uh, Chinese chip companies buying key products that they would use to make semiconductors. Okay, and so that's in a way a little bit easier to control than trying to keep up with every new company that they start in China to sell uh, to sell the same products with. Well, so isn't that a function of some of these blacklists that it's it's not just we can't buy their stuff, but Americans aren't allowed to invest in these companies. You can't sell to these companies. Yes, and so this so this gets to this gets to a much larger issue. And just just to, just to, as as a comparison's sake, um, the Uyghur forced labor bill uh, basically is 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 very important here. Less because I, I want to go down the road of, of of Uyghurs, which of course is 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 an awful issue of itself, but. The Uyghur build is something very important, which you could say maybe is an idea we need to think about with regards to Chinese tech companies. It used to be basically what they're doing is, is they're changing the presumption of guilt for products that are shipped to the United States out of Xinjiang. But the previous standard was the U.S. government had to prove that a product was made with forced labor if we wanted to block it from entry into the United States, okay? Well, how do you go and prove that products are made with forced labor in Xinjiang? That's a very that's a very difficult thing to do, okay? You can't really do that because you're not even really allowed to go in there, okay? So how do you, how do you know whether it's made with forced labor? You can't really prove it. So what the forced labor bill is doing is, is that it's actually changing the presumption of innocence into you as a company, if you want to import something into the United States from Xinjiang, you have to prove that it's not made with forced labor, okay? So we're basically treating all products from Xinjiang as guilty from the start. And then if you say, I actually have a pressing interest, I can prove that this is not made with forced labor, then you can get it into the country. So that standard change is very interesting. And I'm not saying we necessarily apply that same standard to all Chinese tech, but it's definitely maybe an idea worth exploring because otherwise, you know, whether it's exports to China for sensitive goods or whether it is imports from like, you know, this new handset division owned by the Shenzhen government, 
um, you're basically always chasing. It's it's basically whack-a-mole. Isn't it with the Xinjiang thing, though? I mean, how easy it, is it for these companies to just ship it to another province in China or ship it to, you know, Cambodia or Italy or somewhere else before shipping it to the U.S.? I mean, they're literally taking Uyghurs from Xinjiang and putting them on trains and sending them off to other cities to to be involved in factory work, right? And so, and so this actually, and so like one product I can, in addition to the to the example you just cited, Matt. Um, I think one of the other ones that I've is is I is I've I've heard, I've seen reports, for instance, that they're basically sending uh, tomatoes from Xinjiang. They're importing like you know just vats of tomatoes into Italy uh, from Xinjiang, um, putting them in cans and labeling them made in Italy. Now the tomatoes might have been grown in Xinjiang, but they were they were bottled in Italy, and so they will be shipped to different countries labeled as made in Italy. It's a fraud. (laughs) Okay. And so one of the the issues here is, and I was talking with someone uh, very recently about this, is if you do it on a country by – if you do it on, for instance, a company by company basis, it's it's playing whack-a-mole. But I don't know if we're at the point there of – we can sanction either all Chinese technology or, you know, something like that, or even, for instance, like the country of China yet, but we clearly need to move beyond a policy where we're just playing whack-a-mole or even, even Xinjiang, because I think you can see very, very quickly, you know, Chinese companies are going to figure out uh, ways around this Xinjiang, uh, this Xinjiang standard. And then it's, then we're going to be onto the second layer and that's going to apply. Okay. Um, how do we how do we basically expand this so we're not letting in uh, basically products from Xinjiang that are relabeled as something else? Well, so I think you've made a pretty convincing co- point for why uh, sanctions are not the best economic tool the United States has. Uh, what do you think the United States? What would be an effective economic tool the United States could do? So I think one of the things is is that uh, the, the China has this uh, has this concept of a, uh, a, a basically some type of civil military fusion. Um, in the United States, you've seen uh, or uh, in, in the United States, you've seen like a uh, there were some some hearings a couple of years ago with uh, I think the FBI director where he talked about a whole of society uh, type of approach. And I think one of the things is is I think. Um, throughout the U.S. government uh, and 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 even in a lot of the United States, even people I would I would say, and I mean this positively, that I think are pretty concerned about China, aren't necessarily ready to recognize the depth of what that means and how we have to maybe change policy or change behavior. What I mean by that is, you know, just as an example, I would say, uh, you know, we need to engage in a policy of saying. Okay, we, we 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 could not decouple from China within three months. I mean, it would simply be you know very hard, you know, like in the tech space. One of the things we could do, however, is we could actively say we're going to provide incentives for companies uh, to basically shift production away from China to India, uh, to Mexico, places like that, so that you know a lot of those like let's say lower you know Trump got criticized. Um, for uh, tariffs, which raised which raised prices and things like that, but you know one of the things that can be said for that is um, you know price is the best signal, and so if you can raise prices on those on those imports, because let's let's be honest, most of those products that are made in China they're never going to be made in the United States for some time. 
But if we can say, hey, how do we shift some of those supply chains to India, to Mexico, uh, to Latin America, um, to Vietnam, uh, different places like that, um, that is going to start that discussion and really focus government policy on what are the risks we're running from Chinese technology? What are the risks we're running from very concentrated supply chains that are heavily dependent uh, on an adversarial state? And so I think there, there needs to be a broad push to do something like that. That's an interesting idea. I think um, Japan has done something like that, right, where they're trying to incentivize companies to move out of China. Yes. And so they're actually providing uh, they're actually providing subsidies, especially for like uh, uh, different technology manufacturers or whatever, to either move to Japan or move to other approved countries. Uh, like Vietnam, you know, Japan has uh, a lot of companies in uh, in Vietnam. Uh, South Korean companies account for a, a very material percentage of, of GDP uh, in Vietnam. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's Vietnam, India, you know, in some cases it might be moved back home. Um, but I do think we need to engage in a much broader debate about and, and discussion about how can we focus policy, not just on like sanctioning a couple of companies, but how can we engage in, uh, in really a much broader approach, much more broad-based approach uh, to de-risking ourselves from, uh, from engagement with China. What happens if, I'm thinking about what China is doing now to Lithuania, where they're telling you know, these multinational companies, well, if you want, like you have to cut ties with Lithuania or you lose access to the Chinese market. So what happens if, you know, the U.S. tries to incentivize tech companies to move production out of China and then China says, hey, Apple, if you do this, you lose the China market? So uh, so one of the things is, is that uh, the, the U.S. actually has uh, types of laws for that type of situation with regards to Israel. Um, right now, we don't have similar laws uh, for that situation with regards to China. So one of the things might be uh, uh, doing something, uh, passing some laws like that. The other thing that would be very feasible is the United States has to move beyond simply trying to persuade allied and democratic countries uh, to, to treat China as more of a challenge. We, we have to bring resources to bear. And resources to bear could be everything from trade agreements to development financing for countries like India and Vietnam. Um, but basically, we have to bring more resources to bear. Um, and that could be everything. That could even mean just uh, providing investment incentives, like if you... Uh, if you shift uh, production to India, we will provide a tariff waiver for five years for uh, textiles and garments that are no longer produced in China, but are produced in India, um, as an example. But we have to bring actual resources to bear rather than just trying to persuade uh, countries or companies to behave differently. I mean, I can I can see, you know, that helping. But I mean, I'm talking like nuclear option. China just says you are going to lose access to our entire market. Like for a company like Apple, if they weigh incentives for moving production to India versus, you know, losing access to the entire thing, what is there anything we can do about like, is there anything the US government can do? It would it would very much not surprise me if uh, so basically right now a lot of companies like Apple are very much trying to placate both sides and basically there there's there's no way around it 
I mean, is is the bottom line. Um, you have seen companies that have uh, that have basically said this is this is not a place that we can exist peacefully. In. So one of the things, a lot of the ways companies are trying to handle this right now is basically, for lack of a better term, is they're they're basically creating increasingly separate production or supply chain channels in the sense of, you know, China, uh, Apple, as, as an example, they've created a large manufacturing presence in India to serve uh, the non-Chinese market and they continue to move production there. Okay. Um, so one of the things you see is companies creating, this is my supply chain for the Chinese market. This is my supply chain and manufacturing base for the non-Chinese market. Okay. You see this happening a lot with, uh, with IT networks. Um, because theoretically, the Chinese law says if you are Microsoft or if you're Apple, if you're somebody else, if you have an IT presence in China, theoretically, we have access to your entire we sh- we by law will have access to your entire computer network globally. So one of the things you're seeing is is you're seeing companies saying, okay. This is going to be our Chinese IT network, and anybody that outside of China that deals with our China team, you're going to be on that network. Everybody else, we're creating a completely separate IT network uh, for you. Um, and so you're seeing that, and the po- it would not surprise me if within the next five years, we see that decoupling become much more pronounced, much, let's say, a harder line in the sand where companies have to say, do I want to sell to China or do I want to sell to the rest of the world? Because I, I, I can't do both. And we have seen companies like that, you know, individual companies uh, be put in that position uh, in the past, say, couple of years. I think it would not surprise me if that day comes where a much larger swath of companies have to make that decision. It really is just a, a global choice of like, Western liberal democracies or China, who but, leads but the world order? We can make so much money in China, Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Ray Dalio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and uh, look, I mean, it, it, since you guys mentioned Dalio the other day, I don't know if you saw, but the Global Times was touting Ray Dalio as mm. his company was the first uh, to reach the 10 billion uh, RMB assets under management in China, Mark, as the largest asset manager, uh, largest foreign asset manager in China. That's not a coincidence, okay? I mean, that is the basic deal that uh, that companies like Bridgewater make is if you want to be in the Chinese market, you know, this is what you do. Well, invest in basically in RMB in China. One of the things is is China is playing their leverage very well. If if you're if you're taking it from the Chinese perspective, um, one of the best examples was uh, is is Coca Cola. Um, they were lobbying heavily against uh, the Uyghur bill, the, the forced labor bill. And uh, they, they were basically asked, well, why are you lobbying against the forced labor bill? It only applies if you're exporting product uh, from Xinjiang to the United States. Now, right, but, but their secret ingredient is Uyghur tears. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, so that's, 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 that was the old oh, Coke, okay? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, this is so new the, Coke. So they were asked, "Well, why are you why are you lobbying against this? You don't have any stake in this. You never export Coke from from uh, from Xinjiang to uh, to Los Angeles. I mean, the, the cost is it, it makes no sense economically. What what do you care? What was basically came out is uh, Beijing was saying, "You guys lobby against this, or we're going to make your life hell." 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So even this, even though this had no impact on Coke. Okay. Because wow. again, the only way you get in trouble from this bill is if you are exporting something from Xinjiang to the United States. So Coke, this had no impact on them. But they said, we were basically told Beijing will make our life hell if we don't lobby against this bill. It's not enough to just take no position. It's mm. not enough to just take no position. We have to actively lobby on behalf of, effectively on behalf of Beijing. Wow. Xinjiang makes sugar, right? Like, do they use any Xinjiang sugar in there? But like, oh, they Coca Cola don't, doesn't use sugar. Well, I mean, they only don't in use, the U.S. That is true. They don't use sugar in the well, U.S. So yeah. then, if if they could, they get in trouble for using Xinjiang sugar in China. Maybe not. No, no. It's it's only yeah. it's only if it's so. So the United States. So so the forced labor bill does not apply if you make something in Xinjiang and ship it to Zhejiang. U.S. law has no application. Okay, it is only if there's an export that goes from Xinjiang to the United States. Okay, and typically, theoretically, theoretically, it can be applied to inputted like a primary input. Okay, mm -hmm. um, in practice, that's very that's very hard to do. Okay, that's very hard to do. Okay, um, but theoretically, it could apply, but it doesn't really. Okay, so unless they're directly importing Coke from Xinjiang to the United States, this has no impact on Coke, but they were lobbying for this effectively at the behest of Beijing. Because Beijing is making Western companies choose, yes. essentially. Well, I mean, yes. I think this is, we've seen this over the summer too, them starting to make Chinese companies choose. Yes. Like uh, you, you talked earlier about delisting, uh, Chris, but actually like Didi just delisted from the New York Stock Exchange, not because of pressure from the U.S., but from pressure from China. Do you think that the the Chinese Communist Party there are going to essentially uh, try to do what you're saying, like bifurcate the system? I think they are trying to bifurcate the system. Um, absolutely. At the same time, I got to say, especially with the DD case, but even their their, uh, their their broader policy here, I'm I'm a little puzzled by, and and here's basically why. So the basic reason that they're giving for the DD one is that uh, that their uh, their data private their data security concerns about DD listing in the United States. First of all, China has maintained a very strict policy that basically all corporate records in China for firms that list in outside of China are national security secrets. And this is this this goes for accounting records, this goes, you know, for, you know, basically anything having to do with any company, you know, whether or not they produce missiles or just, you know, whatever it is. So those th that data really hasn't been turned over to US regulators for more than a decade, okay? So my first issue is is I don't know what data Didi would even be providing to US regulators. Okay, I can't. I, I don't, and I can't get anybody to tell me like, well, actually, there's this little loophole or whatever that ch Chinese companies give to U.S. regulators. So I don't know what data they would be they would be giving the U.S. regulators. So that specific example doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. That that specific explanation, I should say, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let's say very clearly, however, that Chinese data management practices are absolutely terrible. Okay, I mean, make no mistake about it. Not just you know uh, they're 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 scooping up data on foreigners around the world, but that they are they do actively just have very incompetent people inside these companies managing user user data. 
Um, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The other reason that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense is that New York Stock Exchange is and being able to raise money in the United States and in other foreign jurisdictions is actually very important to get U.S. dollars for Chinese companies that want to expand abroad. Okay, so that's another thing. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why they're trying to cut off that avenue of financing for Chinese companies. Um, but I do think very fundamentally what you said initially about bifurcating the system. Yes, I think absolutely they have made the decision that um, barring you know uh, a U.S. collapse where we say okay you don't have to provide any data, um, any financial records if we ask. Uh, I do think they have basically decided, yes, we're going to bifurcate our financial system from the United States. Well, it seems like China is aware of the economic leverage of the United States, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, China's dependence on U.S. dollars, uh, which is why I think you start to see more and more Chinese companies dual listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, China trying to make its own digital currency. Um how, how do you see China trying to uh, sort of insulate itself from any kind of economic leverage the U.S. has? So I think, you know, I, I think you've seen this in, a, in an, a lot of what we've seen out of China in the past couple of years has really been about that entire that entire issue. Um, whether it's uh, the biggest one, a big one, I should say, would be uh, uh, self uh, self-sufficiency in chips. That has been a major, major issue. Um, I think you've seen this in, you know, this is why they want to send companies that might list in New York. They, they, they're, they're not sending them back to Shanghai. They're sending them back to Hong Kong where they can still access basically what amounts to hard currency because, you know, with, with most examples, you know, the RMB is not really hard currency. Okay, you can't really use it outside of China. We've seen a couple of small examples where they've signed deals with, you know, Zimbabwe and, you know, hey, if, if China wants to sign, you know, a, an RMB uh, agreement with Zimbabwe, knock yourself out is, uh, is, is, is my opinion. You know, have fun with that. But they, they are absolutely sending them to Hong Kong because they can still get U.S. dollars. So I think a lot, I mean, the overall focus, a major focus of Chinese policy is to basically insulate themselves, whether it's technologically. Um, you've even seen this in, you know, basically shutting down data flows. Um, one that, you know, happened recently is they passed this data privacy law and basically even run of the mill data providers in China now aren't providing data to foreigners. And again, this isn't like, you know, hey, where's China store the nuclear launch codes? This is, you know, what is basic business data? They just aren't providing the foreigners now. Um, and so I think you are seeing that, that you know, China is taking the decoupling bull by the horns. In America, we sit and talk about it. China is actually doing it. Mm, so do you think this is a, this represents like a danger for the U.S. then? I think it's a danger, but I think more in the sense of China's doing this for a reason. They're not doing it for no reason whatsoever. You know, the first place your mind would go would be, well, they're preparing for war. Okay, with Taiwan and what would happen if we faced serious sanctions after we invaded Taiwan or something like that. Okay, that's the first place your your, your mind drifts. Um, I I don't necessarily think that that is maybe the the driving factor, but I do think absolutely they are preparing for let's say uh, continued uh, a, a continued trimming of any engagement with the international community. 
I mean, they are becoming, let's say, kind of like almost North Korea light at this point, um, uh, I think is a better way to put it. Uh, and so I think they are preparing not just for, you know, the next year with, you know, COVID, but I do think they are preparing for a sustained period of Chinese history where they continue to minimize any interaction uh, with uh, with the outside world. It's interesting because Xi Jinping basically said in like his, the the most recent five year plan uh, last year something about you know increased self sufficiency for China uh, on things like what you mentioned like semiconductor chips and those issues, but also to continue to have the world rely on China economically uh, and to continue to get people like Ray Dalio to well, invest that, money in China. I don't know if that was said so explicitly, but. Um, do you think they can do this where they can essentially insulate themselves and yet have the rest of the world still rely on them in this like have your cake and eat it too kind of way? If you just look at their basic export numbers, I think that's absolutely uh, what they're what they're accomplishing uh, right now. And this is also why I say one of the things I would I would really push is it's simply not good policy. Okay. Even if you, you know, even if China were a great friend, it's simply not good policy to concentrate your supply chains. It's simply not good policy to rely on somebody that is taking that much of an adversarial position. Okay. Um, and so, you know, this is why I think we have to engage in a much broader discussion of what is it going to take for us to say, okay, American company, if you want to sell to the Chinese market, that's your business. We can't and, and shouldn't really try to stop you, but we can absolutely say you should not be relying on Chinese companies or Chinese uh, production capacity uh, if you want to sell into the United States. Okay. Um, high tech or otherwise, high tech or otherwise. And part of this is also, if we want to change the discussion with our allies, you know, from India to the UK, we need to say, hey, we're not just saying, hey, India, come on, you know, think like we do, but we're providing tangible benefits to thinking like we do. You know, say what you will about China, you know, they they get a lot of stuff done because, you know, every Huawei salesman shows up with uh, with the China Development Bank loan officer. OK, so they can show up and say, you buy my product, this guy will approve you this afternoon. OK, um, you know, some guy shows up and says, I'm 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 going to build a plant. This is my loan officer. He's going to look at it and approve the loan this afternoon so we can start building this this plant. And we need to in in an American way, be able to provide tangible resources and benefits to our allies to say, we can change this so we are not as reliant on China. So this is definitely something China is leveraging. It's, it's, it's economic might, like whether it's, you know, the investment bank deals in third world countries or, you know, the access to the China market for Coca-Cola. But this is the question I have. Uh, China's economy is crazy. Like, just, like, look at Evergrande, what's happening in the real estate market. Like, if China really does, like, create its own economic system, its own economic bubble, won't that just implode on itself? So it's one of those things, like, um, I mean, the Chinese economy is a mess. Make absolutely zero mistake about that. Um, predicting an implosion or a slowdown um, – you know, I, I had somebody tell me, they says, actually, what you saw 
was the USSR economy basically get into the problems that ultimately brought it down, they were saying as early as the 50s. And so 40 years later, it collapsed. Okay. (laughs) 40 years later, it collapsed. So predicting an implosion of, you know, the Chinese economy, like, look, you know, like people have asked about like Xi Jinping and I would say, well, you know, look, if Xi Jinping dies of a heart attack, you know, in a month, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. If Xi Jinping ruled for another 25 years, that also wouldn't really surprise me. Okay. So predicting uh, some type of implosion or something like that, I think is a very dangerous uh, policy plank to hang your hat on. And I think you need, we would need to approach it as we need to expect that, that China's economy is going to keep plugging along um, regardless of what their true growth rate is, is going to keep plugging along for the foreseeable future. And at the very least, we may, we need to make it much harder for them to carry out their economic policies of, of gaining influence in other countries around the world. I mean, it's a really good point. It's like we should just read what they write in their white papers and their five-year plans and – you know, design our policy around them continuing to accomplish the things that they say they're going to do because they like, whether it's, it's, you know, the South China sea or building up its military or, you know, literally considering themselves at war with the U S like they're doing all these things and they're telling us that they're going to do them. And then they do them. Like our policy is designed as if those things aren't going to happen. So we should design them as if the things that they're saying they're going to do, that they are going to do, and not the opposite of like just pretending that like it's going to collapse next month. And Well, I guess this is the fundamental issue. Like you've been talking about things the U.S. can do, and, and certainly you're not alone in saying these things. Like we've talked about it on the show. It's very clear what the U.S. needs to do, but it always seems like there's an issue of like actually generating – not just the political will, but the economic will and like the support within the U.S. population. How can we actually achieve that? Like, you know, all your suggestions are great, but how do we actually get Wall Street to change its views? How do we get uh, politicians in the U.S. government to actually take these issues seriously? So I'll, I'll, te- I'll, I'll take one of some, an issue that I've written about before, um, and I apologize for using one of my soapbox issues, but I think this is this is a, a good place to start. So one of the things that we've talked about is, well, how do we get allies? How do we get like places like Wall Street, you know, other other, you know, some of these different groups to say, hey, we're, we can agree on something here. And I'll, I'll just take one example. So the United States, uh, the, the Biden administration, in things like the the Build Back Better uh, bill that is uh, that is floundering in Congress and stuff like that, there, there's money set aside for like uh, expanding access to renewable energies and environmentally friendly energy uh, and things like that. Well, personally, I think this is a bad bang for the buck, for lack of a better term. And what I mean by that is um, basically the U.S. for really the past, let's say, almost 20 years has actually been declining its total CO2 output. 
uh, we're always thought of, and, and in some ways we are, um, uh, not great environmentally, but uh, the amount of CO2 that we've been producing has been going down very steadily for, you know, for, for 20 years. Uh, the amount of coal that we are burning in the United States has dropped. But when you look at where the expected growth of CO2 emissions and coal uh, consumption is taking place, it's taking place in places like South and Southeast Asia. It's taking place in Africa. Okay, so where is the growth going to happen in uh, in CO2 emissions? That's where it's going to happen. The reason I give you that background is it would be much better rather than putting up solar panels in Massachusetts. It would be much better to say, let's capitalize something like uh, the U.S. agency, the Development Finance Corporation, and say, we're going to go into Vietnam. We're going to go into places like India, which have large amounts of solar power. Okay, or large amounts of solar radiation in Africa, and say we want, and these are countries that are starved for uh, for electricity. Okay, so these are countries where they need a lot more electricity. They're growing very rapidly. Okay, where we can go in and say we're going to finance renewable energy for you at you know at, at some type of uh, at lower rate, um, so that your country can have access to cleaner energy, make a bigger impact on uh, the environment at large, um, especially over the next twenty years, as this is where electricity growth is rapidly taking place. This is going to help with allies. This is going to need um, some sophisticated financing, you know, for hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars. Um, and so there's a way we could do some type of like a public private partnership where you can get a lot of those disparate groups on because now, you know, you can sell it to the Republicans as, Hey, we're getting, um, you know, U S influence and things like that. You can sell it to the Democrats as, Hey, this is environmental responsibility and, and, and building and getting allies. You can get wall street, you know, on board with the fees that they're going to be getting and expanding U S business interests around the globe. How, how environmentalism can help us defeat China. Yes, exactly. And so th th those are the types of those are the types of things where it's like I think there are avenues uh, to do this, and in in relative terms compared to the hundreds of billions of dollars that they're talking about for like you know some of these projects in the U.S., if you literally just had you know even a couple billion dollars a year, um, you could you could turn that into you know uh, big things uh, in other parts of the world. That's a pretty cool idea, and I have not heard that presented before. And you could do you could do a similar thing with you could do a similar thing with like 5G because people talk about 5G, but really you're talking in probably the low to mid single digits a year in network spending on 5G equipment, you know, in 2022, things like that. You're probably starting to get up into the five and six billion dollars. But that's the kind of thing where the U.S. government could offer, for instance, to uh, Latin American countries, you know, uh, Asian countries, where if they agreed to 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 keep Chinese network companies out, we could, uh, we could, uh, give them concessionary financing, um, to buy non-Chinese, you know, whatever company they wanted to buy it from, you know, Japanese, Korean, European, but as long as they did that, we could, we could set up a, a, a financing vehicle where we could provide them financing at, uh, at very low interest rates, uh, to buy non-Chinese, uh, gear. It's basically a green alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Yes, absolutely. And we could do the same for uh, to, to combat like 5G. So it would keep out mm -hmm. Huawei and, and ZTE from, from, from countries. And we're, we're, we're providing tangible resources, not just trying to persuade countries. Well, yeah, I mean, the Huawei, ZTE, that's a huge part of China's Belt and Road. So any 
U.S. alternative would also sensibly. We just, they are doing everything we should be doing. Like, think I mean, about that. Just, but they're doing it, but like, evilly. Well, it's just much easier when you have state-owned enterprises and state-owned banks and whatever to do like a state-run policy like mm-hmm. that. That's the solution. The U.S. Oh, government gosh. needs to collude with the banks and uh, all the manufacturers and put, you know, a government branch in each of these so-called private American companies and just tell them what to do. Uh, Are we that far from that? (laughs) With the banking industry, maybe it's- the other way around. I think it's that the the companies- The the banks have their people in governments (laughs) and- When the waters mix, you can't separate it out. Yeah. Uh, Now I'm terrified. (laughs) So I so all this is to say I do and so this is why I say I think there's more than anything I think it needs to uh, rather than just saying you know hey let's let's issue some sanctions on Chinese companies I think we need to come up with a, a, a broader uh, a broader plan broader policy initiative where we are bringing resources to bear um, and I think even some of the policy objectives that we talk about for domestic issues are things where we could say, we're, we're going to push these policy initiatives globally. Uh, the environment, you know, uh, clearly, you know, we're not going to be able to provide enough solar panels to, uh, to uh, India to, for all their energy needs. We can absolutely say, hey, we want to be a part, we want to partner with you. We want to change the, the, the policy direction uh, as, as an open liberal democracy for, uh, to say, I think we both are very concerned about China. Do you think that the U.S. is 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 there kind of policy wise in terms of your kind? It almost sounds like the whole um, a few years ago, the CCP was talking about going out uh, into the world. And this is kind of you're saying like what the U.S. needs to do is go out and like take some leadership and and work with these countries. Um, Are we there politically? I don't think we're there politically. And I think. even among a lot of people that I respect that I think consider China a real problem, I don't think there's the readiness yet to embrace, uh, let's say, the broader uh, the broader policies that I'm talking about that require real resources. Um, I think they're like, hey, you know, we need to do something about China. Let's let's sign a petition. You know, we need to do something about China. Let's sanction this company. Um, I, I don't think there is politically yet, even among people, again, that I consider, you know, respectable people that I, I do think are very concerned about China. I think there's still a, a, a real willingness among most people to, you know, nibble around the edges without jumping, without jumping into, yes, this is a problem we need to solve and we need to do something and we need to take a broad based approach um, to this. If you look at a lot of the debates, you know, there's still, deba- you know, a lot of professors are still debating whether or not China has, uh, is, is, is trying to influence universities. Um, mm. Exhibit A. Why we're even having this debate? I have no idea. Okay. Um, but people are still having that debate. And you see those similar type of nibbling around the edges debate in a lot of areas rather than saying, Rather than we need to get on board with a broad-based policy uh, initiative, we need to bring resources to bear. We need to go out into the world and work with work with countries and bring resources to bear to challenge China. Well, it sounds to me like the issue is like a mental barrier. Like 
it's it's easy for people to see an authoritarian regime like China as uh, you know something that needs to be uh, contained or defeated. But the idea that the U.S. itself should act like a superpower, should be a dominant force in the world, should uh, impose its will in some way or another in the world. That's, I think that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to get behind these days. There's like this sort of sense that like the U.S. should, you know, be very careful, very hands off, not get out into the world. And, you know, with that vacuum of power, China fills it. I think, you know, there, there's a saying in academia um, that uh, new paradigms are created at funerals. Okay. And I think a very similar type of idea holds even in geopolitics and things like that. If you, if you look at, if you look at a lot of real geopolitical shifts, there was, there was some event that for lack of a better term, tipped the scales and it's like, okay, now we're going in a new direction. And so with China, um, China hasn't really precipitated an event that changes uh, policy direction, uh, even within the United States to a significant degree, I think. I mean, COVID should have. I think Trump started steering in that new direction, but I don't think he said, we're going to, boom, you know, take everything in a new direction. I think he started steering in that direction. And so I think under the Biden administration, I think they've just kind of like taken their foot off the gas pedal, for lack of a better direction. And so I really do fear to a degree that it, if that it's going to that it would take something like uh, a, a full fledged invasion of Taiwan for people to realize what's what's really taken place. Um, and I hope it doesn't come to that. But I do fear that, you know, it would take something like that for a lot of Americans to uh, to realize what's what's really taken place. I don't know. The Nazis invaded Poland and that didn't really. Well. I mean, hey, for the United States, it was it was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it, it would be very interesting what, if anything, would really change that. Or if China, um, you know, continues to say, wait a minute, if, if we just don't precipitate anything like that, it's better for us. Well, a lot of interesting things to think about after this podcast, I think, because it's been very interesting having you on. I liked your thoughts about uh, how to how to how we can leverage a bunch of different aspects of American society behind sort of a green investment in Southeast Asia and Africa. And it's cheaper than the several trillion dollars that, you know, Biden wants to spend on certain things. One of the things that I think is, is, is important here is I think the best ambassadors for America are, are not necessarily the official ambassadors or politicians, um, though they absolutely play a role. I think it's getting Americans out into the world. And I think it is working with other countries, the people that will be, you know, the Americans businessmen that will go live in countries and uh, help build up businesses in countries. And, you know, people like myself that were professors in those countries and, and things like that. And I think, you know, that's, that's the strength, you know, America has, has a real strength of, uh, of the people that, that, go and, you know, work with countries and, you know, um, the entire environment of our, of our country, I think I'm, I'm very proud of. And so I think if we can, if we can leverage that and say, what, what can we do to help you as a country? And we, we share common concerns about China. What can we do to help you? I think that's the real, uh, that's the real, the real cultural attractiveness of, uh, of the American ideal. Hmm. 
Oh, that's very well said. Nice note to end the podcast on. Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can make America great and build back better. Wow. Wow, Chris. <laughs> You should be the ambassador that goes out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> They'll love me. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thanks again for joining us today. Not a problem, guys. Hey, appreciate it as as always. Yeah, that, that was a very interesting uh, uh, interview. It reminds me of the old saying, looting and polluting is not the way. Hear how Captain Planet plans to fight the CCP. It didn't rhyme. It's, it's not true if it doesn't rhyme, Chris. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is why it's China unscripted. Mm-hmm. If, if I could, if I had scripted that, it probably would have been better. Yeah, maybe. Or I just would have <laughs> written what I said and then hoped you would have fixed it. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Then then I would have fixed it uh, in the script. Okay, so fix it now. No. Okay. Uh, thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chapel. Is that it? Do we have anything else we want to say? Uh, I guess I didn't give you either of you an opportunity to share your thoughts. Nothing else I want to say. One thing I did think was interesting about what uh, Chris Balding suggested was it is instead of trying to punish the CCP for doing what it's doing, it's trying to essentially uh, take a positive action in the world. Reward good behavior. Or, I mean, I don't even, I think you kind of have to do both things like you have to provide an alternative and you have to also sanction the- tighten the screws on the ccp so it has less room to operate while yeah ingratiating but, yourself with countries around the world but we've talked about this problem where like there are a lot of countries that there's no other choice for them to, but to work yeah with the, you yeah know. i mean often the ccp like goes to dictators who don't want to have to deal with like investment from the West that also requires like political reform, but that's not the entire situation. A lot of it is like, you know, we talked about the Solomon Islands recently. It's right. like the U.S. doesn't even have an embassy there. It's there. There's a, there's an opening for the U.S. to operate in, but if we're, we're not doing it, we're not doing it. And so then the option is China. Pretty much. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting that the idea is to, to go out and do something in the world. Go forth, young man. Wasn't that from something? I think you're thinking go west, young man. Oh, yeah? Uh, Manifest destiny? (laughs) Am I advocating manifest destiny? Uh, Let's not do that. (laughs) Okay, well, it's basically done already. Uh, Yeah, well, I feel like this is basically like your bits of American history that you learned in high school. Just just, swimming around. Yeah, like bubbling to the top suddenly. I won't let China China tax my stamps. There you go. Uh, I'm so glad we got these extra thoughts in. I thought I made a good point. You did. Thanks, Shelley. And thank you for watching. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jung. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. See you next time. <laughs>